0: Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted March 24, 2017, we preview key components of the new spring issue cover package, Fascism Rising, with editor Christopher Shea. We'll also point out other top features in the new issue. But first, this week's winners and losers report from Ian Bremer, president of Eurasia Group Global Risk Consultants. Winners and losers, the hearings heard around the world. James Comey, winner, he comes across as professional, answers all the questions, makes the headlines. Sean Spicer, loser, his... You know, he has to be the first person to go at some point. When is Donald Trump going to actually follow him on Twitter? Donald Trump, loser. You know, he's trying to say that this is about the leaks, but in reality, everybody wants to hear uh, about Russia. Hillary Clinton, loser. No one wants her to come out of the wood yet. Oh, my God. Vladimir Putin,
1: unbalanced, winner. He still was able to dictate where, when, and what.
0: You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Devastation wrought by the atomic raids of 1965, three great police states rose to divide the world, Oceania, Eurasia, and East Asia. Atomic weapons were abolished, but not war itself, for only by maintaining the strain and tension of continual conflict could the ruling parties enforce absolute power. From the opening of the 1956 film, 1984, the first big-screen version of George Orwell's iconic dystopian 1948 novel, ironically both then and now a holiday film production. This coming April 4th, to commemorate day one of the tale's personal and political rebellion, the keeping of a diary that begins Down with Big Brother, Arthouse theaters across the U.S. plan coordinated screenings of a 1980s movie adaptation starring Richard Burton and John Hurt. Since the inauguration of President Donald Trump, sales of the novel itself have jumped 9,500 percent, and with Trump and his supporters continuing to stress the dangers of terrorism, immigration, and what they call fake news contradicting their alternative facts, 1984 seems likely to remain a bestseller once again. Orwell stressed the importance of language and of maintaining truthful understanding of both present and past. Freedom is the freedom to say two plus two equals four, says one of the characters in his book. If that is granted, all else follows. All else follows is also the headline on Christopher Shea's introductory editor's note to the new Spring 2017 issue of World Policy Journal, cover line Fascism Rising. And we discussed it recently for this podcast. Christopher Shea, welcome back to World Policy on Air.
1: Thank you for having me back.
0: You note that Orwell used his 2 plus 2 formula six years earlier. In what context?
1: In, in the early 1940s, Orwell wrote a short essay titled Looking Back on the Spanish War. As World War II raged around him. He wanted to rethink his experiences fighting fascism during the Spanish Civil War. He'd already published his now famous book, Homage to Catalonia. But in this piece, Orwell wanted to explain the power that politicians can have in crafting history, um, and the importance of history in crafting the future. So in looking back on the Spanish War, he he writes, quote, about a nightmare world in which the leader or some ruling clique controls not only the future, but the past. If the leader says of such and such an event, it never happened, well, it never happened. If he says that two and two are five, well, two and two are five. This prospect frightens me much more than bombs. And to say in 1942 or 43 that a prospect frightens you more than bombs is is really something. It's this fear that Orwell has of uh, reclaiming of the past in order to control the history that's sort of at the center um, of so many of his books, both fiction and nonfiction.
0: Along those lines, what are the aims of the fascism rising spring issue of World Policy Journal?
1: The aims of this issue are really twofold. First, to try and put Trump's rise into a global context by trying to understand the strategies used by autocrats to distort history, erase truth, and mobilize their publics, Uh, and second, to explore strategies for pushing back against the rise of xenophobic populism around the world.
0: Let's start with the contributor you describe as one of Vladimir Putin's most fierce and eloquent critics, uh, Masha Gessen, uh, in the conversation section. Talk about her emphasis on language.
1: So Masha Gess made her name as a Putin critic, has now taken those analytical skills that she sharpened covering the Kremlin and taken those tools to Donald Trump. Uh, And she argues that language is crucial not just in resisting Trump, but also in recovering from him. Uh, She urges urges us to remember that there will be a time after Trump. Uh, She told me in the conversation section that our ability to recover will depend on the state of culture and the state of culture will be determined largely by the state of the language. If we don't have language in which to recover from Trumpism, we will be unable to recover. Trump, and argues, views anybody who insists on beauty as an elite. Uh, that, she says, is, is how you degrade um, the, the public sphere. Uh, she, she's written elsewhere that Trump and Putin have a way of making one ashamed of seeing and hearing. Uh, And this can really degrade the the culture and our institutions in a way that makes it harder to resist um, a potential autocrat.
0: A scholar of Central Asia sounded an early alarm over the way Team Trump's aversion to facts undermines democracy, and she sees an echo of the dictatorship in Uzbekistan. Talk about that.
1: In this issue, Sarah Kenzier compares the fabrications of Trump's advisor, Kellyanne Conway, to those of Uzbek dictator Islam Karimov. Conway made, made up a mass terrorist attack on U.S. soil, the so called Bowling Green Massacre. Um, in much the same way, Karimov invoked an alleged Islamist terrorist group. In both cases, these make believe tales were designed to demonize Muslims and create an alternate history of terrorist threat.
0: What about Trump supporters who say uh, Conway and company just suffer bad memory and slips of the tongue that are clearly nonsense?
1: Kenzie responds in her piece uh, to those people that Conway's fantasies, quote, should not be dismissed merely as disprovable nonsense. They should be heeded as a warning and viewed as a contribution to a greater narrative, one that the government may insert into public life whenever it deems necessary. In the piece, Kenzie argues that the purpose of an obvious lie is not to deceive but to assert power. Um, It's also dangerous because these lies strip us as citizens of our ability to trust our leaders and politicians and assess the true state of our national security. Uh, What happens if there is a real terrorist attack? Who is going to be able to trust Kellyanne Conway or any of other Trump's here surrogates to truthfully deliver um, an assessment of the situation?
0: or even after Trump's uh, uh, comments about uh, Obama wiretapping him, uh, trust Trump himself. I mean, that, that has become the big question uh, for Americans and for the foreign leaders he has to deal with. Uh, moving on, Ian Bateson in the Ukraine also finds an example of how recasting past history may establish or enhance current authority. Say more about that.
1: So Ian's piece explores how establishing a particular version of history can, can help assert authority. So Ian visits the founding uh, of the political wing of a far-right nationalist battalion in Kiev. Um, And reclaiming history is fundamental to to uh, this party and its party's founding. When Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014, one of Russia's main justifications for the incursion was that Ukraine had no history as a state. And so connecting the threads of Ukraine's past becomes a key part of Um, The case for an independent future for Ukraine Uh, In fact, the party goes as far to purchase What's supposed to be a 10th century uh, um, Yeah, goes as far to purchase What's supposed to be a 10th century lead seal Of a Kievan Rus prince Um, The leader's goal, Bateson writes Is is for their their followers and for Ukraine as a whole to, To embrace this imagined past That quote they hope will become their future.
0: But the fight against far right populism requires more than attention to past history and present day language. Uh, what Masha calls, quote, a vision of the glorious future. Another contributor has some thoughts on putting that formula to work in France.
1: Our writer, Cole Stangler, who's a uh, Paris based uh, journalist, um, really really argues that the left in France needs to stop apologizing for holding left positions and really embrace um, a set of policies that help uh, people across races and across classes and really sort of focus on the um, needs of wage earners, um, possibly even at the expense of of the elites and thinks that that's a way to – save france from the threat of the far-right
0: a silicon valley political science professor also has some ideas for europe and the u.s.
1: Ah, so this piece by terry givens who's a provost and professor at menlo college Um, and she writes that mainstream left parties in the u.s. and europe uh, need to focus on addressing inequality strengthening unions and developing more supportive immigration policies Um, parties can't just play defense they need to stand for something. And Terry argues that, the, that left parties throughout Europe and the U.S. need to take a multi-ethnic, multi-racial approach that prioritizes social welfare, and that that's the, that's the equation for winning at the polls.
0: Also in the U.S., Cornell Humanities professor Enzo Traverso reminds us that Trump is not solely to blame for the state we're in, and not, quote, uh, a meteor crashing down onto a peaceful country. What's his larger point?
1: Uh, So Enzo Traverso, who's a a scholar of fascism and, and as an Italian, very familiar with the likes of uh, Berlusconi, uh, argues that Trump is is not a fascist in the traditional sense, and that on the morning of November 9th, the U.S. didn't wake up as a fascist society. He argues that Trump is something new, something modern, and something not yet fully realized. Uh, Trump combines racism and nationalism with what he calls a, a, quote, savage capitalism, uh, something he describes as capitalism without a human face. Uh, and I think Trump's recent budget, he proposed to cut Meals on Wheels, um, would, would back that theory up.
0: And I guess he also makes the point uh, that that Trump is uh, successful playing on waves of these sentiments that pre-existed him.
1: Correct. Trump is not some mastermind. Um, uh, that's coming in and, and inventing the xenophobia. These, these, the xenophobia was there and and was was in place and being um, activated long before uh, uh, hit his election. Both what has the potential to save the U.S. from Trump um, and also um, what allowed for Trump to happen were sort of all, already in place in the U.S. and elsewhere.
0: The big question feature in the New Spring issue also considers the consequences of language manipulated and misused. What role does the media play in driving xenophobia, it asks. And the answer from Germany shows a dramatic shift in the tone and impact of reporting on migrants as their numbers and their impact grew. What was your takeaway from that piece?
1: Ah, So so that piece is by J. Olaf Kleist, who's a senior researcher at the Institute for Migration Research and Intercultural Studies um, at the University of Osnabrück. Um, And and what his research shows is the ways in which xenophobia sort of infused the coverage of refugees in the early 1990s in Germany. And then in 2015, there was this... um, important shift, this this abrupt shift in the German media, which all of a sudden started to cover the refugees and economic migrants in a much more humane way, um, in a way that centered the experiences of the refugees themselves. Then, just as abruptly, following a series of sexual assaults during uh, the 2015 New Year's Eve celebration in Cologne, the coverage shifted once again uh, to uh, em- embracing a, a, m- a much more uh, anti-refugee sentiment. Um, j- journalists, he, he writes, had internalized the notion that they had been too positive in their coverage. Um, and he, one of his main points is that these shifts in the media broadly match the shifts of government policies. Uh, Kleist suggests that the media is, is taking its cues directly from the government.
0: A contribution from France argues that, quote, the great nationalisms of the 20th century were largely media-driven fractures between us and them. Uh, But I wonder if more palpable factors like nationally cohesive markets, economies, transportation, telephone networks within nations didn't do at least as much. How do you see it?
1: So, so this piece is by uh, Dominique Trudel who's a researcher at the Institute of Sciences and Communication Techniques in, in Paris, France um, and he argues that media provides a common experience of space, time, and language um, and he says in a sense there's something inherently xenophobic about that as they quote provide a specific experience of belonging that may appear natural um, So, and I, and I think this explanation of the media is, is very much interrelated to the factors that, that you mentioned. Um, like changes in media and media technology, um, the, the, the factors that, that you mentioned also obviously play, play a key role in providing a common experience of space, time, and language. Uh, but the media is a key part of, of that equation even taken into those other factors because it's needed to uh, communicate that identity and reinforce those communities.
0: I was fascinated uh, with the way a contributor from Russia saw the endless amplification of dramatic, often fear-inducing stories by commercial media, especially 24-7 cable news, and seemingly independent, not to say anarchic, social media today. Uh, The way they can and do uh, make admittedly real problems seem so much worse than they are. What's your view on that?
1: Ah, so, so the Russia piece is by Ekaterina uh, Zabrovskaya, uh, and she's the former editor-in-chief of Russia Direct, and she traces much of the anti-Muslim sentiment in Russia to the disproportionate uh, focus of the media on crimes by members of its Muslim ma- majority. I think, I think that's um, that Muslim not- minority. Yes. Yes, but, and then I think that phenomenon of the media focusing on the crimes of its minority groups is something that uh, resonates certainly here in the U.S., but also uh, through, uh, throughout the world. Um, and in the piece she quotes this 1963 book, uh, The Press and Foreign Policy, by Bernard C. Cohen, who wrote that the media, quote, may not be successful much of the time in telling people what to think, but it is stunningly successful in telling its readers what to think about. And that is sort of key, a key part of, of this piece. And it's the way in which um, the media drives, not necessarily the thoughts of um, people, but, bu- but, but driving exactly what citizens care and think about politically
0: also I think both in commercial media and the social media there is a tendency to want to give an audience make an audience by giving an audience what it seems to want and the uh, and the dramatic appeal of stories and especially negative stories uh, tend to be repeated and repeated because that's what gets eyeballs that's what gets clicks um, and uh... and the twenty four seven situation is such that every hour has to do pretty much the same that the previous hour did that's the Film or the tape or the news that they have, and uh, it it reinforces in some cases the good as you as you said in, in, in one phase of German reporting on migrants, and in other cases the the worse. Um, are there any other pieces in this section you want to comment on the, the,
1: the, there was and um uh... There's the, the last response in the big question section speaks to well, what, what, what you just mentioned about, um, and the piece is by Sadet Harry, who is a, the community lead for the Coral Project, um, which is an open source project dedicated to creating better communities around journalism. And, and she, she explores exactly this, the double-edged nature of journalism, in particular in social media. Um, and there are so many new mediums coming and going at the moment. There's of course Twitter and Snapchat. There's the now discontinued Vine. Um, and all of this has, has uh, some very positive sides. It, it's sort of especially the way it's allowed underrepresented groups to bypass traditional gatekeepers. But it can also create and reinforce these media bubbles um, where people can avoid, avoid facts and, and differing opinions. I'm glad we were able to include Sedet because she was able to really focus in on um, uh, issues of social media, and I think the sort of dangers that she's talking about will only become uh, more important into the future.
0: Any comment on the right-wing loss in the recent, in the recent
1: Netherlands voting? Uh, well, it was, it was it was very heartening that the that what what's that Geert, Geert Wilders, who's, who's very much a white nationalist, uh, d- did not win, but he still had a strong showing, and it definitely shows that um, the threat of far-right populism and of a far-right xenophobic party coming to power is by, is by no means over.
0: Boss, thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you very much.
0: Christopher Shea is the editor of World Policy Journal. He commented on his editor's note previewing articles in the new spring 2017 issue cover package Fascism Rising and the issue's big question. What role does the media play in driving xenophobia? (music) Also featured in the new WPJ spring issue, you'll find articles on the infrastructure of counterinsurgency, on the retro-macho politics that doomed Dilma Rousseff in Brazil, and on Ukraine, buffer or flashpoint between Russia and the West. And listen next week when our podcast will consider the fight against restrictions on abortion across the Americas. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, online news editor Laurel Jarambeck, podcast producer Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpert.